Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, episode 173, Brendan here with Mark, as usual, Friday 22nd of January 2021, 2021, and vetgurus.com. Visit there, vetgurus at gmail.com. Send us an email, and we have an email to talk about this week, don't we, Mark? And also our sponsors. We haven't really mentioned our sponsors for a few weeks. So, Mark, I think you wanted to have a bit of a chat. You've 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 been out in the road, pounding the pavement, and visiting one of our one of our researchers or our sponsors. Have you? I did, I did indeed. Uh, Brendan had the exquisite pleasure of um, of uh, visiting uh, uh, Doug, our um, our contact in Microchips Australia, and um, and uh, got to catch up with his family and. Um, and have a little talk about the uh, the research team um, that we have here at uh, Vet Gurus. The the massive amount of time and effort that goes into uh, both um, researching each of the episodes and uh, preparing the the uh, documentation and um, and uh, obviously all the follow up that goes on. That huge research team. I just had to give them a little pat on the back while I was out. Visiting. Absolutely. And you didn't um, wake up with a fuzzy head and um, a, a microchip implanted in various body parts and, a, and an e-collar on you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I did go to a door and it, was, it didn't seem to open uh, where it previously did. Um, ah. <laughs> I'd be checking your car, Mark. You need, you need to um, take it to uh, one of these security places. I think he's probably planted a few of his little trackers um, in your car when you weren't looking there, Mark. So I'd be... Be afraid, be very afraid. <laughs> well, it is. It's a, um, I was fascinated to be talking with Doug about, um, uh, you know, he was waxing lyrical about the uh, the ostrich and emu work that he does. And, um, and yeah, just uh, reflecting on the, the wide range, you know, starting in that work and doing a bit of identification stuff and then getting into microchips and now the broad expanse of stuff that uh, Microchips Australia do and particularly how they help us in um, in uh, exotic animal practice. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure catching up with him and I can't uh, recommend those. Uh, the, you get onto that uh, website, Microchips Australia, and not just the microchips but those uh, extra bits of equipment, the Lone Star Retractor and the, um, the lighting system for ultra-small surgery. The things Doug's got are just so useful for us, aren't they, Brendan? Absolutely. Surveillance central there, Mark, as well in one, one section of it there. And I take, I took um, a veil of a lot of the, that gear when the girls were growing up, as, as we know, Mark, and um, came in very handy, um, those trackers. And um, as I mentioned, that's happened in your car. I've secreted a few around in, the, in um, various spots um, within the, within the, um, well, let's just let's just leave it there. <laughs> but thanks to Doug, and yes, he certainly does help us a lot with our, our um, research as well, um, and as do our other sponsors. We thank them very much as well, and that's Chemical Essentials, all the F10 products with Andrew, 
and also Jen and the team from Specialised Animal Nutrition Australia, which is the Oxbow distributor here in Australia. So, yes, thank them very much. And our, and our sponsors also with our Patreon sponsors as well. And we're always looking for more sponsors to help um, pay, for the, pay for the podcast as well. So visit the website, vetgurus.com. Uh, there you go. And, Mark, we, I did mention a – let's jump into – to um, email that we received that I thought it was a good one that we should um, reply because it's very topical because it's about our, our most recent podcast before this one, which was where we were talking about, um, well, dystopia, wasn't it, in Chelonians? And um, the email is from Rita, who's a, a long-time listener and fan and subscriber. And hi, Rita. Thank you very much for continued support for us and um, I know she mentions us to her colleagues um, and her comment is what dose of methadone do you use in turtles Mark um, would you like to take that and answer? Oh, I'd love to answer but Brendan we've, we should just mention that um, one of the things about the our podcast our discussion is that we fairly rigorously um uh, avoid talk of specific yes. dose rates because, well, it is there are um, some legal implications and and obviously it's very easy, um, particularly because you tend to do the podcast after you've had eight or ten beers. It's very easy for one of those dose rates to slip out incorrectly. So we usually don't mention these things, but um, in this instance particularly uh, it being Rita, uh, a long-standing uh, listener, where. And you know, um, you're you're currently quite sober. I thought today would be a day that we make an exception to that rule. Um, so in our practice, we probably are using methadone in the dystochic turtles, those turtles that are painful in that circumstance, at um, a relatively commonly published dose of between three, two to three, up to maybe five milligrams per kilogram. It's a, a really much bigger dose than most people would expect in the, you know, if you were familiar with uh, the dose rates for methadone in small animals, you're generally talking 0.1 to 0.4. So it's a good order of magnitude higher. Now, we would often have uh, those um, turtles that particularly in our area, area, the long neck turtles that get clipped by a car and have major shell fractures. Um, and if they are not um, going to be immediately euthanized. We would use an even higher dose, maybe getting to 10 milligrams per kilogram with those guys. So three to five, up to 10. Interesting, Mark. Funnily enough, very similar with what I often use. Two to five is probably my general range. And it's often my pre-med of choice with a lot of reptiles um, that are undergoing any form of potentially painful or discomfort, um, surgical cases, etc. Mark, um, I use methadone as a pre-med. It's an interesting I point. I use IM. It's an interesting point, Brendan, because a lot of the published literature in this area seems to suggest that, um, well, A, it's very hard to um, assess the analgesic effect that some of the traditional experimental models don't work so well in turtles. Um, and the other thing is that um, often I've found a number of papers which don't uh, support the, um, the suggestion that um, there's an anaesthetic sparing effect of using uh, 
pre-meds in turtles. But that's not been my my clinical experience is that I do find I need a lesser dose of the Alfaxan um, if I'm going to induce a general anaesthesia, if I use um, a mu agonist as a pre-med. What's your experience, Brendan? Um, I, gee, you like to put me on the spot there, Mark. <laughs> um, I certainly use it as my standard pre-med, and that's mainly to provide that analgesic effect as far as the anaesthetic sparing effect. I think it does help a little bit, but I'm not convinced how how strong that effect is if that makes sense um so um and yeah i think you're spot on there and that there's very little um hard evidence out there about um these products and i think it's mainly because that, that people haven't done the studies you know they've that there's um it's another another thing that we need to get somebody out there to do um who's got more brains than you and i mark and do the research there because um i think we'll find in the future once um all these sorts of pre-meds and opiates and and other um anesthetic agents and sedative agents that um haven't been studied very well in in the in these in reptiles especially, but in exotics in general, we'll, we'll end up knowing whether they do work on or don't, Mark. But I expect that I'll keep using it as a as my potential pre-med just because of the want to have some analgesia on board already and hope that it does have a bit of an anaesthetic sparing effect. Because um, I must admit, I cannot remember the last reptile I induced for a routine surgery Without the methadone on board, Mark, it's my it's my go to with them. Do you do you induce many with um, just just the alfaxalone or the or the propofol? I don't um, think that I'd like you. I don't think there's a single one. I I um on occasions we uh, in in times gone past we would um, just go straight to the the intravenous induction agent induction. Yeah. um but um but there would be very few cases these days where we do it and and for this the reasons that i mentioned we we um not at the same level that we might see in small animals but we do perceive an anesthetic uh agent an induction agent sparing effect um and i think the key thing too is that it's very very hard to assess um analgesia um, there are some circumstances where I feel very confident about altered heart rate or um, maybe a, a reflex, a pinch reflex that's um, that's noticeably lessened. Um, but um, but uh, geez, even if it's not working at the level I assume, um, I don't think it's causing any problems with these. Um, you know, it tends exactly. to stabilise yep. the anaesthesia, and we're in a better position. Um, so I have no trouble using it. Almost well. All the time, Brendan. I agree. Well, there you go, Rita, a bonus answer, um, two parts to that there. <laughs> so dose rate that we use and also another use of methadone in the reptiles. So keep the emails coming um, to all our listeners, vetgurus at gmail.com, and don't be afraid of asking. There's no silly questions. There's only silly answers, isn't there, Marcus? And we've got all we've, the silly answers. We've, we've proven to the, today or tonight or or this morning, depending on when you listen to this. So you have a you have a really interesting news story. I want you to get stuck into Mark. Um, it's about well, what, what's it about? You, you, you introduce it. <laughs> it's about moths, Brendan. It's about moths. Um, um, and I, it's it's an article that I do feel connected to because, um, 
both here in Newcastle and when I was, particularly when I was growing up in Sydney, um, there were years that oh, I can still remember my grandmother who has since passed away bemoaning the fact that she had to sweep up the thousands of bogong moths that uh, flooded into her uh, her uh, back patio where the light was left on at night. Um, and we all can remember the um, uh, Sydney Olympic Games where uh, weather forecasters were thrown into disarray as clouds, literal clouds of bogong moths uh, flooded from the western plains of New South Wales heading down towards the the, um, the high country, the alpine country that straddles the border between Brendan's state and mine, Victoria and New South Wales. Um, they... Uh, the sheer numbers involved in this migration are mind-boggling, um, that literally billions of moths embark on this journey, which, uh, depending on where they come from, can be virtually a 1,000 kilometres. Um, and, of course, the lights of the city, both in Canberra and particularly Canberra and uh, uh, Sydney and the coast, um, they can confuse them and get them to shoot off track. But um, the worst part about this story is it uh, records the um, gradual decline that um, uh, that uh, particularly in the last few years, um, Brendan, there's been that perfect storm of, um, of uh, factors, um, the things uh, that you know, we've talked about a number of times the f the uh, environmental factors, the um, the uh, drought um, that's been going on in country New South Wales for eleven years or so, um, uh, anthropogenic uh, warming, uh, temperature rises, um, waves of habitat destruction, and also maybe some new insecticides coming onto the market. These Things all have worked in concert um, to uh, to really uh, knock the population about, and the little caterpillars. I think, I think Mark, we can blame the bogans for the <laughs> lack of the bogans. Um, You've been working be on the that title. Day, yes. <laughs> and that should be the title of this article. Um, and for our overseas listeners, I'll have to look up what a bogon bogan is. B o g a n Yes. Um, so sorry to interrupt you, but I had to put that in there, Mark. <laughs> Never a problem. I'm, I, I stand in awe of your puns every time we talk, Brendan, so I'm always happy to <laughs> step aside and let you let one rip. Um, yeah, so the, the um, insects in general are pretty resilient, but uh, that perfect storm of, um, you know, the drought, um, they are terrestrial uh, caterpillars up on the ground in um, in northwestern New South Wales, and there just is no plants on the ground in that environment. And uh, the little desiccated caterpillars have probably largely died out and not even got to make the journey. Um, and the, the, one of the consequences of this is um, some of our really well, pretty cute and cuddly the the uh, 
pygmy possum of the alpine region uh, really depends on the little protein flush that comes from feasting on uh, the bogong moths. Um, uh, so they're doing it tough and their numbers are declining because of the you know domino effect. Um, I was interested, uh, Brendan, in particular that um, these moths don't they, they every, I, I've been aware that they uh, get down there and get into caves um, and um, reproduce and then get back um, uh, out in the I don't know I don't even know if do they go back I don't know how they get back up there but these I always had it in my head that they were like you know, it's like one of those caves with bats in them that there'd be thousands and thousands of moths coating the roof. But um, I'm given to understand reading the article that it's, um, you know, they just find tiny little cracks in the in the granite. A couple of rocks together will create a little miniature cave and these are the locations that they're in. So research into them is really, really difficult. And just as you were talking about uh, reptile analgesia before, large-scale data, um, in this instance, uh, um, data on the behaviour of the moss, just isn't there as a result of lack of funding, time and access. Um, it's a bit of a omnipresent story, isn't it, Brendan? Yeah, and I think one of the lines in that article is, there just aren't enough scientists to help track four billion moths. Um, and I think that's probably um, a correct statement there, Mark. Yes. I wouldn't want to be the person putting the radio trackers on them. <laughs> no, although um, Doug could uh, retire early if he, if he scored that contract, I think, Mark. Yes. So, yes, Bogong moths, um, interesting story. My one's not quite as... Um, scientific there mark um, although it's from a from a scientific paper and um, it's one of these odd ones mark it's um, and the title of the article is robots could replace real therapy dogs so um, I think the title sort of immediately gets me a little bit skeptical there mark <laughs> and um, in one of the papers that no doubt you read mark the International Journal of Social Robotics um, has found that the robotic animal which is called Miro e can be just as effective and may even be a better alternative in according to Dr poops uh, Dr Proops sorry <laughs> Dr Proops um, from the Department of Psychology who supervised the study um, and basically what they had they had two normal therapy dogs um, that they used um, this was in in the UK um, interacting with 34 children aged 11 to 12 and also one biomimetic robot um, that looks it does look pretty cute mark I don't know I, I linked to the actual paper from the journal there and it, it is a pretty cute looking robot a dog there black and white little little dog with a pretend collar on it um, and versus a Jack Russell, a three-year-old Jack Russell, Poodle Cross, and a 12-year-old Labrador Retriever from Pets of Therapy. Um, and it, yeah, and this is where I get even more sceptical. The children are asked to complete a questionnaire about their beliefs and attitudes towards dogs and robots, <laughs> um, these, these 11 and 12-year-olds, um, before they took part in two separate free play sessions, one with a real-life dog and one with the robot. And the researchers determined that the children spent a similar amount of time stroking both the real-life dog 
and the robot, but, Mark, they spent more time interacting with the robot. So there you go. Um, so this is a small-scale study, their summary said, but the results showed that interactive robotic animals could be used as a good comparison to live dogs in research and a useful alternative to traditional therapy. And, um, yeah. Um, and <laughs> so, yeah, the other thing that I liked about... Um, um, the benefits of, of these dogs. Um, there are a lot of positives to using a robotic animal over a therapy dog. They can be thoroughly cleaned <laughs> and can work for longer periods of time, uh, I suppose, until their battery runs out. And they can be also incredibly lifelike, mirroring the movements and behaviour of real animals, such as wagging their tails and showing ex excitement or expressing emotions. So... Well, you've probably gathered by my tone in this article, Mark, that I'm not too impressed um, and I may be cancelling my subscription to the International Journal of Social Robotics. Mark, what do you think about this? I think it's a self-serving hunk of garbage. <laughs> Why don't you tell us what you really think, Mark? Um, I think that, um, that uh, like, I, I know that... Um, that you've got to start somewhere and you've got to make, you know, that's the nature of science. Some people are going to make some hypotheses. They're going to interpret data, you know, as supporting or not. And then those are challenged in terms of, um, you know, subsequent experiments. And I, I have no doubt that um, the kiddies were perfectly happy to play with the robot much longer than the um, the... Well, it was Jack Russell Terrier Cross. Um, so I, I, but you know, the robot was probably novel and yes, and probably a bit different to you know, the dog was probably similar to a dog that they may have had at home. And so there is some familiarity there. And look, I think the other thing is that you can say it's a positive that you can um, spray F10 all over the robot and um, sterilise it, and that's a good thing. But I, I would have thought one of the benefits of gentle play with well-cared-for dogs amongst youngsters is the appropriate development of their immune system. And I don't know, playing with a robot that's been dunked in a bucket of F10 might not stimulate as much immune response as, um, you know, because we all know how good F10 is at killing everything, um, might not stimulate the same immune response. So the interpretation of that being a good thing, uh, just, I don't know, it's got to start somewhere. I appreciate the Journal of Social Robotics is trying to get information out there, but I call me a sceptic. Well, I can't add anything more to that, Mark. Um, I'm just flicking through the paper as as um, as you talk there, and they've got some nice little images. Of, they use GoPro cameras and observers. Um, they, they had ethics approval, Mark. Um, no dogs were harmed, including the robotic dog, and they were used for a maximum of two hours per day, which is pretty good, with half-hour breaks after the first hour and five-minute breaks between each participant. Um, Interestingly enough, the robotic dog, Mark, if it wasn't um, played with after a few minutes, it goes into a sleep mode. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they left that turned on, that sleep mode, because they thought it would mimic uh, um, the natural sort of behaviour of dogs that get a bit bored and they decide to have a bit of a sleep. 
Um, so, which I think I'll be doing after this podcast, Mark, and some <laughs> of our listeners have probably already done. So, I think that's our last news story. So, we'll jump into our main topic this week, which is a, I think it's a good one. It's something that we commonly get asked by our clients and certainly by veterinarians without much experience with unusual pets, and that's arthritis in unusual pets, Mark, osteoarthritis or arthritis generally, um, do we see it and, and what do we do about it and what pets do we see it in? So we're going to rip through this, Mark, because I think it's a really good one because I expect that you're going to say yes when when I ask you, do you have many clients saying, is my bearded dragon, is my snake, is my, is my rabbit um, prone to arthritis or does it have arthritis what's your answer to that mark i think it i think it's a great topic brendan and and the real kicker is the fact that it is not you know there's a general uh sort of i don't know when we think about our companion animals the larger breed dogs are more likely to develop um degenerative joint disease um and so we have this sort of like preconceived notion that the littler they are the less likely there is to be uh to be joint problems and so lots of people approach this problem as not being a uh, well not being there that often and add to that the nature of our exotic pets and their preservation reflex the urge to conceal problems particularly chronic low-grade progressive ones, um, it's easy to see why people that uh, come at this without much experience might think it's not a big problem, but we see it every day, Brendan. Funnily enough, very similar, very similar, Mark. And um, it's amazing how many clients seem a bit surprised, don't they? they? They think, or a lot surprised, don't they, that they think, can my lizard get arthritis? And it certainly can. So let's jump into it. Well, let's talk about the signs. And in my experience, they, they, they can be fairly subtle or even very, very difficult to detect in, on, on a basic sort of examination of some of these pets, especially those prey species like the rabbits and the, and the guinea pigs, Mark. So it can be sort of secondary problems, isn't it, Mark? So I, I often quiz the client with these pets, especially the elderly ones that we may be expecting an increased incidence or chance of arthritis in them. Um, is it behaving a little bit different than it used to a month ago, a year ago? Is it just as interactive as it was with the humans and its little cage mates? Is it getting a bit grumpy or is it getting a bit quieter than usual um are we starting to see problems like um intermittent soft stools and clumped cicatrophs around the backside or or problems with with urination and incontinence and urine scald that we may see with with an animal that's just a little bit stiff and sore and so they're not sitting or squatting correctly to to be able to urinate or defecate normally so sometimes it's looking for those sort of secondary secondary sort of signs in them what's what's the classic sort of signs you see with with these exotics um with arthritis mark that you end up diagnosing well i'm embarrassed to admit brendan that that what you say is true and and it's often the case that um that i'm working with that secondary problem i am looking at um an inappropriate elimination urination problem i'm looking at um pressure sores i'm looking at um 
uh, a snake that has um, sat overly long on its heat pad and has a thermal burn. And it's only a little bit down the track that I, you know, piece things together and go, why did that happen? Um, And so often it's the case that the animal... And the other thing I find, it's not the sort of, you know, absolutely bloody geriatric animals. Um, The fact that we keep them in captivity and they live much longer than they would in the wild means that um, even modestly aged animals will... uh, of the exotic species um, will get into trouble with joint disease. And I um, would be remiss if I didn't highlight the fact that um, that metabolic bone disease um, yes. will often have, uh, particularly birds will have um, uh, problems when they're very young that might not even, you know, we've, we've uh, radiographed a number of birds now for other reasons and found profound changes to the skin the skeletal system um, that the bird has coped with, um, but obviously it changes the nature and pressure of uh, forces in the joints and leads to uh, a degenerative change. Um, and so it, it's um, metabolic bone disease is another contributing factor to uh, the occurrence of problems within joints. But um, but I, as I said, I'm embarrassed to admit that it's often uh, later on that I go, oh, my goodness, we've got to uh, do our further workup and figure out whether uh, degenerative joint disease, osteoarthritis, is uh, contributing to the problems we're seeing with this patient. Those secondary problems are often the clue. Yep. And I often call, call those sort of metabolic bone disease ones almost sub, you know, I call them the subclinical metabolic bone disease that's been sitting there in the background. Um, and then we're picking them up when they're middle-aged and arthritic as well. So it can be a bit of a challenge, can't it, Mark? So I think it's always, it's it's not having that blinkered approach to conditions and thinking, okay, what we know that this animal has the signs of potentially X organ dysfunctional failure going on with it but what is further up the track with that you know is there other um, compounding factors involved with it Um, so you know the workup for these or the the, I suppose the confirmation for these Mark um, I'd be very interested in your sort of um, approach to these say if you have got one of these Birds or, or lizards, um, and I see it fairly frequently in bearded dragons, Mark, um, and increasingly in, if we talk about species, rabbits. We see a lot of osteoarthritic rabbits um, and well, yeah, guinea pigs as well, I suppose, um, and, well, all of them rats and mice. We're, we're seeing a fair few, especially the ratties. We don't see a lot of mice or mouse consultations these days although i saw one earlier this week um so the workup for these um as far as i'm concerned is is again like any condition i'm um, ignoring what we think's there and, and doing a general a general exam um general full bloods on them um often or, or most of the time sedating or anaesthetizing them and doing some whole body radiographs typically um with them it ends up being 
and picking up those characteristic changes and on the radiographs with them that that leads me to the diagnosis is there any other sort of tips or or, or work up um, procedures that you do with these ones mate i think you uh you're right on the money with the sedation or anesthesia brendan i find that um that little part of the process uh where i have a compliant animal they they do conceal those things they'll hold a leg rigid or they're back in a certain position and it will be very difficult to generate some discomfort but once they're um, very deeply sedated or anesthetized it's much easier to pick up uh, changes in range of movement or maybe a, a subtle withdrawal when the joint's in a certain position so i think um, that palpation and manipulation under anesthesia as uh you know, uh, in the, at the same time as the radiographs are taken, that I find that a very, very useful exercise. And, and the more you do that, um, my experience has been the more clued in you get to, you know, the normal range of movements. Um, there would be lots of times where um, I've had a bird that looks perfectly normal and we anaesthetise it and uh, we become aware that it can't move its wing in the normal way, first by comparing it to the other side, of course, but um, but also uh, there's symmetric cases and that experience of having flexed and uh, manipulated each of the joints regularly while you have animals anaesthetised gives you the clue that there's restriction and then you get the radiographs and as you said, the signs are, um, are typical of all animals who have inflamed joints, the increased joint space, the likelihood of remodelling and enthesiophytes. Um, that's all there to see. And is there any other species that off the top of your head you would commonly see um, within, the, within the groups of, of animals that you see at your practice? Look, I think um, you you said it earlier that um, it just about spans all of them. We haven't mentioned uh, in great details the birds, just uh, metabolic bone disease, but particularly the the birds that get to a ripe old age, the 20, 25-year-old cockatiel, the 70-year-old galah, those every time I see one of those birds, um, they have significant uh uh, osteoarthritis as a component of the health issues they're dealing with um, and uh, and so I, I definitely wouldn't you know birds are light for sure uh, but that doesn't um, rule out uh, damaging changes to joints as they get older yes okay so we spoke a bit, bit about the basic workup with them um, what's your plan with these mark what do you put them on what's the treatment does it work <laughs> it sometimes feels like it doesn't but um i think the key thing i would um i would I want well it's it's one of my little spiels that i uh, deliver to the clients we're lucky to have a whiteboard in the the consult room and i'll often draw a little graph of um of the decline of the exponential decline that occurs in an animal's um mobility, well-being, and, uh, and um, you know, the increasing discomfort. Um, and, and I think with uh, almost all animals that are suffering degenerative joint disease, we're still going to see that to a certain extent. Joints don't, uh, um, like, once the, that process of inflammation and damage begins, we're going to 
lessen it, but we're still going to see uh, many of those animals, you know, be held where we first see them or maybe even get a little bit worse despite treatment. So I think it's worth putting in people's heads that uh, those animals are better off with treatment, even if they don't look like it than if they don't. We don't have that pair of animals where we treat one and not the other and can see the difference. And so sometimes it can be depressing for clients to invest a lot in that care um, and not see the animal return completely to normal. Yes. And I think we do certainly have the clients that won't want to do any of that initial workup or even plain radiographs with the mark. So some of those that were highly suspicious of arthritis in those patients, we will put them on a bit of a treatment trial um, and see how they respond to that. And as far as the treatment, actual medications, Mark, what are you using? <laughs> um, well, we depend heavily in the first instance on um, on you know, drugs like meloxicam. Um, if we've, if we've, as you've suggested, done a blood test and we're happy that um, the organ function is fine in the kidneys and liver, then we'll start them on a course of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And meloxicam is convenient because of its liquid form and the way we can titrate the dose pretty accurately. Um, and and we'll almost always couple that with. Um, uh, one of the uh, 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 pentasan polysulfate products, cartrophen, or the various trade names that it goes under. Um, the uh, there's my experience has been clearly that those products have the same sort of effects um, in our exotic patients as they do in. Um, in the dogs and cats we see, and probably that's not so much of a surprise. The the inflammatory mediators, the anatomic structures that go into joints, uh, they're, they're not remarkably different um, between species. It's not like we're talking about huge phylogenetic differences. So um, we definitely use uh, those joint fluid modifying agents. And um, we certainly are, especially in those small mammals, yeah. Mark, and we see a not really obvious response with them. Um, so are you using them in, sorry, are you using them in, in, in reptiles much? I must admit I rarely have tried or used them in reptiles. Yeah, it's definitely. You'll be saying you're using them in in uh, in the lizards, I presume. Yeah, yeah. and you, you, uh, we probably haven't mentioned, and I should quickly, that um, once we get significant change to the spine of snakes, if we see those changes, then they're probably, in most instances, they have to be very modest changes for me to contemplate um, treatment, and the treatment has to be very aggressive. And, of course, uh, a lot of those snakes are going to have... Um, uh, infectious causes leading to those degenerative joint changes. So a lot of the snakes that we get to see are very advanced and uh, and we're often talking about euthanasia with those guys. But the lizards, and you highlighted too that bearded dragons, an increasing number of patients uh, of that species we're seeing, and they do get to a ripe old age. And uh, yet we are using some, uh, some pentasan polysulfate in those guys as the joints get... Uh, worse with age and 
schedule for using those, Mark? Just interestingly, um, are you doing the initial course like they recommend in in dogs? Yes, for instance? we are. We're, we're doing the, you know, once a, a week for four weeks um, and then making an assessment of the response to treatment. And a lot of the animals that, uh, that we start, we'll get on to a, you know, once every... Uh, 12 weeks, four weeks, two weeks regime. And it is, it never ceases to amaze me um, how um, when we do this for an individual animal, the clients become very clued in on um, those things that you talked about, the altered body position, the, um, you know, staying in the one spot, uh, the rabbit that doesn't bink anymore, um, where they might not have noticed that before. Once the treatment occurs and some of those behaviours return, um, the clients become almost like, you know, the day Manic. they start going as signs, <laughs> they're, they're heading. Yes, they ring you up and say, he's he's my rabbit's jumped up on the couch again for the first time yeah. in three years yeah. or he's, he's, she's doing binkies again and I haven't seen that since she was six months of age, yes. It, it can be quite dramatic and, and certainly you see some that you don't see any response at all and I, I usually say the same sort of words to clients that I would if I'm dealing with a, with a dog, say with um, hip osteoarthritis um, when I'm commencing those pentazam polysulfate type products in that if we don't see a an obvious response after the initial four doses, and I do the same as you there, Mark, um, then we usually don't don't um, consider continuing that course. And we do have a large number of, especially the small mammals that, that are on um, once a month injections um, that seem to do very well, yeah, on them. So, and then we combine that with, with our non-steroidal certainly. And then, then we do have a play around with some of the other um, pain relief type products and and, um, selectively choosing things like um, our um, gabapentin, for instance, um, seems to help with some of these long-term ones, Um, plus or minus the odd ones with with tramadol um, seems to work with with some cases as well. Um, Are there any... Any comments on those, Mark, or any other sort of um, medications? Initially, I was um, probably a little bit um, cynical about, you know, gabapentin has a checkered history um, as being promoted for this purpose. But um, certainly I've had some cases where I've got no doubt it's made a big difference, and particularly as part of that multimodal thing you um, hit with several things at once and it the synergy between them seems to be more profound um and what's the amantadine is the other um gaba um uh, yes. uh um uh agent and um and and that we've had a few cases lately where we've been adding that into the mix as well and uh and certainly it seems to be making a difference and tramadol is one that uh, that I use quite frequently in the reptiles, Brendan. Have you? Is that uh, um, a pattern that you've been following? I, my impression is that um, that the you know the the um, tramadol doesn't taste all that good. Um, no, it doesn't. And and uh, and particularly our sensitively uh, um, tasting. Small mammals will often be very difficult to get it into, but um, we don't seem to have that problem with our reptiles. And tramadol uh, really is, uh, um, you know, second to meloxicam has gotten up there as one of the things we use in those reptiles. We think we've got some degenerative joint disease. Well said. 
Well said, yes. And I suppose we should just briefly touch on, and we probably already have, prevention, Mark, um, for these conditions. What's your summary to the to the new client that's coming in with a, with a youngster or the old client that's coming in with a youngster of one of these species um, as far as preventing arthritis for this animal as long as we can? Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record, Brendan, because it's the same sort of thing that we, you and I harp on about in our droll, monotone, boring voices, well, at least mine, um, that I want them to eat just enough so that they're not overweight. I want them to eat a broad variety of foods and not just be dependent on, um, you know, seeds or high-energy foods. I want them to have mental stimulation and environmental enrichment that encourages muscle strength and uh, full range of movement of the joints. I want them to be happy and healthy for as long as they can be. And those husbandry things really set the scene for that stuff in the future, I reckon. Yes, that's a good summary there, Mark. Very good summary. I don't think I can add much to that. So, But, yes, I think it's something that those veterinarians and veterinary nurses, technicians who are not dealing with the exotics very often, you need to start thinking about arthritis in these animals because we certainly see it. And the good news is we can certainly control it and make those animals a hell of a lot more comfortable and provide them with excellent quality of life um, many of them for for many months if not many years and especially for you with when you're dealing with those birds that are 80 year old birds mark um, you might have them mm-hmm. kicking around and flying fluttering around for another another few years after that relatively pain-free um, any closing thoughts mark well the the only thing i was going to mention in closing was that uh Harkening back to the beginning of our discussion where we highlighted the the um, secondary conditions as alerting us to a problem, um, the, the benefit of being aware of our osteoarthritis in our small and exotic patients is that um, you'll often prevent those secondary problems from, from arising if you're on the ball. Um, uh, then, you know, preventing the bunny from adopt, you know, not eliminating normally um, will prevent those problems, will quite possibly will prevent fly strike and soil that's a consequence of the soiling around the vent. So it's not just the well-being associated with the joints, but the whole quality of life. Well said, Mark, and Mr. Outro's here already. Until next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.